What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. The current chairman of the SEC is Gary Gensler, who headed the CFTC under President Obama. Gary is a former partner at Goldman Sachs, a former professor at MIT, and a very well-recognized expert on the financial markets. I had a chance to sit down with him recently to talk about some of the key issues facing the SEC, including how to regulate cryptocurrencies and how to deal with the enormous new technologies affecting our markets. Your main principle, though, of the SEC, as I understand it, is fairness and disclosure and equity. Everybody's treated the same. Everything's fair. Everything is disclosed and do not rate the relative merits of investments. That's the principle, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about it as a three-part mission, investor protection, which embodies much of what you just said, facilitating capital formation, companies that uh, are raising money, entrepreneurs, but also those of us who are homeowners and take out a mortgage. We are issuers as well. We're raising money. And then that which is in the middle, fair, orderly, and efficient markets. Investors, capital formation, and then the markets in the middle. So since the great market recession, the great recession of 2008 and 2009, at which time you were then the head of the CFTC, which regulates commodities and futures, since that time, the markets have changed dramatically because of technology developments. Are you uh, thinking that the SEC and other regulators have been able to keep up with all these technological changes? It's, it's a real challenge, David, uh, for uh, across our government to stay up with the remarkable innovations. Uh, the last time we updated our rules for the stock markets, the equity markets, was in a significant way, was in 2005. And 16 years later, those rules that may have been fit for purpose then, uh, are they really ready for the 2020s? And nearly half of our stock market does not trade in the transparent, what's called lit exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, but they're in dark pools or they're in wholesalers. So I've asked staff, well, what can we do to update these markets for the 2020s, given the rapid change of technology? So let's talk about that particular change. Um, you have said and others have said that the markets are supposed to be equitable and fair to everybody, but so much of the markets are now controlled, some people say, by a limited number of market makers who may not give everybody the fairest price. That's the argument that some people make. How are you going to deal with that? And is it a big concern or is it a modest concern? Well, um, it's, it's important, I think, an agency like ours to constantly uh, bring up to date our rule set. So I would say it is a, a central concern, if I can use a different word than you did, about our regular investors, and we've seen an increase of retail uh, participation, but our regular investors, as well as the big institutions, uh, having efficient markets, and are they getting what's called best execution? We wrote a rule years ago about that you're supposed to get best execution out of your broker. And is that happening when, as you said, a few wholesalers are are buying the order flow, and, and a lot of that's getting concentrated around a few uh, wholesalers. Hey, let's talk about some other technology changes since you were last in government. Uh, one of them is something called a SPAC. 
um, a SPAC is a new device to enable somebody to go public without going through the normal IPO process. Does that offend you that people are going around the IPO process you have at the SEC? Or do you say, okay, as long as some disclosure occurs? Look, I think that uh, we, we at the SEC are committed to be technology neutral and innovations uh, like special purpose acquisition companies, which actually have been around for quite some time. It's just they took off in the last two years and, and there's been hundreds of them, as you know, and well over $100 billion uh, raised through these fundamentally blank check companies. Um, what we're looking at is how do we guard the public, not just in disclosure, but also there's very significant fees. The, the sponsors generally take about 20% as a promote. They have two years to invest the money. Uh, they're encouraged to invest the money because they want to get that 20%. Uh, and then what sort of conflicts does that set up? What due diligence are they doing when they're buying those target companies? Uh, having said that, we're looking at how we can bring some greater disclosure, transparency, and deal with some of those inherent conflicts. Now, there's another issue that has arisen, which is called gamification, which is to say uh, people are making a game out of trying to buy stocks and very young people are caught up in it. You have very, very young day traders. Are you worried about this uh, phenomenon? So if I could take just a step back, we live in the 2020s in a new digital age where, where applications on our phones can uh, use massive amount of data and then predict our behavior. And this is true outside of finance and inside of finance. Outside of finance, the streaming apps figured out a while ago that I'm kind of a rom-com type of guy, okay? That's figured out. Now in this space, whether it's a robo-advisor or a brokerage app, if they figure out by giving you, David Rubenstein, a certain signal, a certain color, a certain prompt, a behavioral prompt, that you might trade more or you might buy a higher revenue product for them, therein lies a potential conflict. What do we do when the digital algorithms are maximizing for the company's revenues rather than our returns? And so we're trying to think that through. It's not just gamification. It's a little bit more than that. It's whether there's a conflict between the app and our investment returns. CEOs today are more outspoken than they used to be about public policy issues. Is that something that the SEC thinks is a good thing or should CEOs just worry about the share price and earnings and things like that? Or should they comment on voting rights or climate change things? What do you think CEOs should do? We hear from market participants that helps us be better at what we do. We hear from advocates uh, all across uh, the markets and all across the political spectrum. That helps the five of us in the commission to hear from the public. So whether it's a chief executive officer or it's somebody who's buying the first 50 shares of stock in a company, we benefit from hearing from folks. And, and my, my call list or, or made public uh, uh, on a monthly basis. You'll see that some CEOs get, get in touch. They wanna, they wanna say something about, maybe it's about equity market structure. Maybe it's about climate risk disclosure. Maybe it's about what we talked about earlier about SPACs or crypto. And uh, we don't have to necessarily agree. We try to, when we disagree, to disagree agreeably as my uncle Norman used to say. 
Um, but but it's helpful to hear from uh, uh, people in the markets. So today, uh, what would you like most people who are not knowledgeable about the SEC, but are watching this interview, they want to learn a little bit, what would you like them to most know about the SEC? Markets work best when we have rules of the road. I, I, I think that those of us at the SEC are entrusted uh, to ensure that the markets, as the best they can, are free of fraud, free of manipulation, that you as investors get to decide what risk you take. Now, many companies that are based in China are now traded, I think, in the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, but they are not subject, as it turns out, to uh, accounting oversight in the same way that American companies are. Uh, are you worried about that? And is there anything you think you can do about that? Was you and I are both Baltimore boys, so we both remember fondly uh, Paul Sarbanes, who was our senator here in Maryland for well, I think thirty years, right. and and Paul and Republican Mike Oxley came together in two thousand and two, and President uh, George W. Bush uh, worked with them on something called the Sarbanes Oxley Act, and there was another basic bargain. That basic bargain was if you wanted to raise money from the public. Not only did you have to provide financials that were audited, but your auditor had to be subject to inspection. Basic bargain. So to your story is nearly 20 years later, companies from 50 plus jurisdictions have allowed their books and records to be looked at, inspected. In essence, the auditors to be audited. Two jurisdictions have not, China and Hong Kong. And so Congress last year said, all right, enough is enough. And they set a three-year clock in place, a three-year clock, 2021's year one, that if we can't work this out, if the auditing firms of these China-related companies don't open up their, their work papers, then what Congress said, then we have to suspend trading, that these companies should not be able to access U.S. markets uh, through our stock exchanges and the like. So uh, you're too modest to point this out, but Senator uh, Sarbanes, uh, principal staff person drafting this Sarbanes-Oxley was Gary Gensler. So you know this law pretty well, right? Uh, yeah, there were, there were others involved as well. And I, I learned working for, for a senator, I mean, it was all there. If it went well, it was theirs. But if it went pear-shaped, of course, it was maybe right. the staff's. Um, but yes, I do know it. It was, a, it was after Enron and WorldCom failed. And so Congress stepped in and said they had to change this and up, up the game, up the rigor with regard to auditing in the United States. So as you pointed out, both success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. But both of us are from Baltimore, though we didn't know each other growing up. I'm a, you know, 10 years plus uh, older than you. So you uh, grew up in Baltimore. Uh, were you in a, a very wealthy family or was it a blue collar family? What kind of family was it? Well, neither of my parents went to college. In fact, my grandfolks didn't, three of them didn't even go to high school. But my dad started a, a small business out of, uh, with his mustering out pay after World War II. And while it never had more than, I think, three dozen employees, it was a vending business in, in the bars of Baltimore and so forth. It sent all of us uh, uh, kids to college. It helped pay down the mortgage over the years. Uh, and um, we, we lived a, uh, a good life around this small business and through the community of Pikesville that I grew up in. So you were four uh, other siblings, one of whom is your twin brother. Is that right? Yeah, I have an identical twin brother. Watch out if he goes on TV. So uh, who's smarter, you or your twin brother? Oh, Rob is. Uh, so you went to uh, Pikesville High School, a very well-known high school in that area. I assume you're near the top of your class and you went to uh, University of Pennsylvania undergrad. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Rob went there as well. We both went to Wharton. I had a fateful decision. He had gotten in a little earlier than I, and I was, uh, I was accepted. We were both kind of math kids, and I was accepted to MIT, and uh, my twin brother had gone to Wharton, already accepted, and then on a fateful day, I decided to go the same place. It, it's worked out for me, and I ended up at MIT many years later. So. so you graduated after Wharton, and then you went right to Goldman Sachs? Yes, I joined a group called the Merger and Acquisition Area. It was about a dozen people. Uh, headed by Steve Friedman and Jeff Boise at the time, who you might have later known. Uh, and then it grew. It was throughout the 1980s, grew rapidly. And you became uh, one of the earliest or youngest partners at Goldman. Is that right? Uh, I was honored to uh, make it into the partnership uh, while I was in the merger and acquisition area. That's right. So you're a partner at Goldman. You're making a great deal of money by any normal human standards. Why did you leave Goldman Sachs? I, my time there was, uh, I spent 18 years there. I did a number of things, not just this merger and acquisition area, but I went to the trading side. I went and, and helped uh, run part of the back office. It, it was really just uh, a remarkable experience and opportunity. But I, I, felt, I felt some connection to public service, maybe as a, as a kid that was the class treasurer and lost for senior class president. Um, I always had this connection, and I thought public service was uh, something, if I had the opportunity, I wanted to be part of. Well, one of my mentors, uh, one of my uh, bosses at Goldman Sachs, Bob Rubin, uh, had been chosen by President Clinton, first to be his national economic advisor and later his treasury secretary. And uh, Secretary Rubin knew I'd be a soft touch for service. And when President Clinton won a second term, uh, an opportunity arose. I, I, I guess I competed for it, but an opportunity arose. And I went down to uh, the Clinton Treasury as an assistant secretary for financial markets. And I, I haven't looked back. It was been, it's been a terrific 24 years. Right. So after you left um, the Clinton administration, when it ended, uh, did you decide to go back in the investment world or what did you do? No, the, fir the first thing I did, along with a colleague from the uh, Treasury Department, is we wrote a book, uh, 
we we thought of it as a common sense book on investing, which really was promoting the use of uh, low cost index funds for people that have uh, just their their retirement savings and saving for their futures. So that was the first thing. And then I started working with Paul Sarbanes on that, which you said became this uh, accounting law called Sarbanes-Oxley. And then uh, ultimately, uh, President Obama is elected and he asked you to be the head of the CFTC. Is that right? Yeah, I had been working on uh, then um, Senator Clinton's campaign, the 2008 campaign as a senior advisor. So I was particularly honored that he he reached out and uh, his, you know, gave me the opportunity to serve once again. So when you head of the CFTC, as I mentioned earlier, we were going through a recession. So you had to pick up a lot of pieces of failed investments and so forth. Was that a more challenging position than the one you have now um, at the SEC? They're, they're, they're both remarkable organizations. The CFTC is, of course, smaller. And the CFTC is interesting. It was set up to oversee commodity futures or derivatives for corn and wheat. And then in the 1970s, it was expanded to energy products and yes, interest rate products and, and even the S&P 500 stock future. So, so these, these, these derivative products, but an innovation had come up called swaps. And swaps, which are very similar to uh, futures, another form of derivative, had not been regulated. And in the middle of that crisis, that 2008 crisis, credit default swaps and swaps uh, led to some of the, the instability in our markets. So working with Tim Geithner, working with Mary Shapiro at the SEC, working with all the members of Congress actually across the aisle, we cobbled together reforms for this swap market. Now, uh, you had a very impressive career, and it's still very impressive, but at one point you had a tragedy. Your wife passed away, and you had to raise your three daughters essentially by yourself. So how did you do all that while you were doing all these other things? Well, I'm not sure I did it all that well, but I was actually off the grid. So we lost Francesca in 2006. She had first had cancer when we were, uh, I guess you'd say kids. I mean, uh, she wasn't but 30 when she first had uh, cancer, and we were dating, we were blessed to go on and get married, have three wonderful daughters, but we did lose Francesca to cancer in 2006. And I was kind of off the grid and uh, for three or four years, uh, pretty much stayed home dad. Are your daughters, any of them now influenced to go in the financial services world? <laughs> no, one's a remarkable uh, uh, artist, a political cartoonist and artist. One's a PhD in cultural anthropology and one's working in immigration law. So President Biden, he asked you to head up the SEC. Were you interested in doing that at the time you were teaching at MIT? Um, you finally got your taste of MIT. So why did you decide to leave MIT and come in and run the SEC? One, when a president asks you to do something, it's really hard to say no. Let me, let me just say that. But it's also just an incredible privilege and an honor. I've been around capital markets my whole adult life. Uh, starting, as I said, as a 21-year-old at Goldman Sachs, and here some four decades later, uh, I've asked once again to serve. It, it, it's a hard thing to say no to. I will say this, though, being a professor uh, at MIT is an incredible experience. The vibrancy of that student body, the faculty, the staff. So 
but even there, I was studying the intersection of finance and technology. I was spending a fair amount of time on that intersection and the new innovations around fintech, and then more precisely around artificial intelligence and right. also cryptocurrency, sort of that it started with the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper 13 years ago. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Well, let's talk about that. You did teach at MIT about things that you don't like to use this word cryptocurrency, I guess, but essentially cryptocurrencies. What is the SEC doing about that? Is, is it a, is, are cryptocurrencies are a, a security or are they not a security? Is it a currency or is it what is it? It's clear if if you're using this new technology to raise money from others and those other people, the, the public are anticipating profits based on the efforts that that brings it into this what's called an investment contract. Congress back to back to 1933 and 1934, Congress painted with a very broad brush, David. They painted with a broad brush to protect the public from fraud when people were raising money from the public and the public is in anticipating a profit based on those individuals raising the money. So it look, it depends on the facts and circumstances. It depends obviously on each individual uh, token. But many of these, uh, maybe even the, the the majority of them, are tokens raising money from the public, where the public's anticipating profits based on the efforts of of the the, the others, the promoters. So, should we anticipate that you will have regulations clarifying what the SEC is going to do on cryptocurrencies and related kinds of uh, things in the near future? Uh, I actually think, David, it's 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 pretty clear. Uh, my predecessor, Jay Clayton, uh, said this more than once, that he thought it was pretty clear that many of these tokens, maybe actually his words where he hadn't really seen many that weren't uh, securities. What, what we've asked the trading platforms, the lending platforms, the other various venues to come in, to work with us, to get registered under the securities laws, because if a platform has 50 or some of them 500 tokens on their platform, probabilities are they're not all uh, non-securities. So how do you get uh, ideas from the White House? I mean, you were appointed by the president, you're the head of an independent uh, agency, but if the White House has policies, do they call you up or you basically, once the president appointed you, you don't see him again? We work very closely with the US Department of Treasury, with the other financial regulators, of course, our sibling market regulator, the CFTC, and the bank regulators and the Federal Reserve. And uh, I'm 
I'm a member of something called the Financial Stability Oversight Council, again, something Congress set up after the 08 crisis. And yet we're an independent agency where if we write a rule, and certainly if we do enforcement actions, we, we don't, we don't uh, check in with the White House. And that's by Congress's will. Congress wrote the law that way. And um, so there's a certain independence from that uh, that daily uh, back and forth with uh, so, so President Biden isn't calling you saying, good job, Gary, you're, you're really doing a good job there, right? Well, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't probably uh, uh, want to disclose any of that. But that's a, that's a would be a pretty unusual president, SEC uh, chair. I mean, I know my predecessor may have played golf or something, but that's not happening here. Speaking of golf, how do you stay in shape? You look like you're pretty fit. I mean, how do you exercise or stay in shape when you're chairman of the SEC? Well, you're kind, you're kind to say that. I've been a lifelong uh, uh, runner, and I learned a little bit of athleticism. That decision, that fateful decision to go to University of Pennsylvania because my twin brother was there, was also I ended up being a coxswain for crew, and I learned from Coach Ted Nash this incredible sense of – he was an Olympic oarsman and Olympic gold medalist – this incredible sense of, of, of that it's important to think about our body as well. So I try, I, even to this day, I try to still get out and run. I'm not as good a runner as I once was. Um, uh, I've done a, a fair amount of biking in my life and mountain climbing and trekking. My eldest daughter and my youngest daughter and I have all sort of trekked together. My middle daughter, the anthropologist, doesn't like that bit. But uh, these are some of the things I try to do. So the pleasure of being the chairman of the SEC is what? You've obviously been trained for it. Why do you enjoy doing this? Because it's a 24-hour day kind of job. You're always going to have critics. Why do you enjoy this job? I assume you do enjoy it. You know, I do enjoy it, David. I think, look, everybody's got to find their passion. I was intrigued and interested in finance. I was, my twin brother and I, I guess, got you know gift of math and numbers. And, but I was also always like, felt like, that what we can do to leave our world a better place, uh, you know, when, 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 when we get to the end of our lives and look back, it's our family, it's our loved ones, it's our friends. And to me, can we leave the world a little bit better off? And that's, that's what motivates me in this job. Can we, can we do something that's better for working families or people starting out in their life, saving and investing for their future and tip the scales a little bit in their favor, away from uh, the folks in the middle. So does your twin brother ever say, uh, you did a better job than I did or than he did in your career? Does a twin brother say, you got a little lucky? Or does he ever say, I was really smarter than you? I just didn't want to be the chairman of the SEC. What does he say about this? Um, Rob's a terrific friend and a terrific brother. And he says, usually just, Gar, go get him. Thanks for listening. To hear more of my interviews, you can subscribe and download my podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. 
Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.